0: My uh, my favorite part is when Jesus says loud laughter, and he kind of bobs himself kind of giggling. Do you ever notice that? Uh,
2: no, I'm not aware of Jesus ever saying anything about loud laughter.
0: Well, in our intro video, Jesus oh, I'm is on so the sorry. screen. Okay, and there's yes. a little bubble that says loud laughter, and Jesus kind of bobs up and down like he's chuckling a little bit.
2: Okay, and that's brilliant. That's all your handiwork. Yeah, yeah.
0: It only took me like 17 days to make that thing.
2: Yeah, and well worth the effort as long as you're doing it and not me. That's all I can say.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing so
2: good. Good. I am doing fantastic. The sun is out. The birds are singing. There's a song in my heart. And maybe I'll sing part of it at the end of the show.
0: I love it. I'm hoping to hear that tune, my friend. It sounds like a good one. Games people play. Yeah. We are on episode number, I think, I think 77. And we're going to talk tonight about our good dear friend, apologist Jared Halverson, mm-hmm. who really is in the last couple of years kind of made a, a name for himself, right, and uh, has begun kind of being the go-to guy, along with the uh, the 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 um, conspiracy theory expert. Um, is it Erickson? That's Erickson a, a Church History Library. Keith. Yeah, Keith Erickson. Right. So it's either, it's either Keith or Einer. Yeah, and I think it's Keith. <laughs> I don't even think
2: Erickson no. spelled the same way, so probably yeah. no relation either.
0: But uh, we'll dive into that. I do want to set a goal tonight, RFM. Our goal would be, we talked about this off the air, I'd like if we got 10 new recurring subscribers, and anybody who's listening, and we know that number's around six to 10,000 depending on the episode, um, anybody listening, if you go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button and create a recurring monthly donation doesn't matter to us what amount three bucks five bucks don't care but just a way for you to help us keep this kind of stuff going the last few weeks have been amazing as we've deconstructed serious issues within the book of abraham and i know what's coming up in the next few weeks and i'm really excited for what we're going to cover and uh, folks if if you could if you could uh, donate a few bucks each month it would deeply help us and to all of you who are already donating and helping us in other ways, uh, we, we deeply appreciate each of you. And uh, it's a lot of fun to put this show together, and we're really enjoying uh, the ride that we've been on. About a year and a half, you you mentioned this uh, in a text this mo- uh, sometime today. And uh, that's pretty good, like a year and a half in, and we're going strong. People tune into the live chat. People are loving the shows. So with that, if anything else from you, and we'll jump into it if not.
2: One announcement. Please. I've gotten my uh, my schedule set by Sunstone, so I will be presenting at Sunstone. I think I'd mentioned that before. I sent in a proposal. They said yes, and it is the Radio Free Mormon Magic Show.
0: Look at that. A magic show by Radio Free Mormon.
2: I could be mistaken, but this just might be the first magic show ever in the history of Sunstone. The schedule yeah. is going to be Saturday, July 30th from... Oh, jeez. I think 230 to 4. If you go to the Sunstone uh, website, it'll have it up there. So it's either going to be SRO or SOL.
0: Not sure which at this point. Um, Wolverine wanted to know what's on your shirt. Logan, how are you doing? Yeah, he's just bobbling his head, you know. Weapon
2: X. There's a throwback reference for any of you who might get it. What's on your shirt, my
0: friend? Look at that. Doctor Strange. It's Doctor
2: Strange, baby. Look. The Multiverse of Madness.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So folks, if you weren't planning on going to Sunstone, you now have to go to see the Radio Free Mormon Magic Show.
2: And they put me up directly opposite Lindsay Hansen Park, who's apparently going to be doing a live podcast.
0: She's going to regret that.
2: No, I don't think. I think I'm going to regret this. (laughs) No, I
0: think both will be packed full.
2: This is like putting me up against all in the family back in the early 70s.
0: Every one of them uh the, yeah i'm at the show i'm the show
2: i, the show. <laughs> I know <laughs> okay good good you know the
0: show all right <laughs> all right well folks get your tickets to sunstone now because i don't think they're going to last it's going to be max capacity um i will say just to, just a little nod in the past when we've done sunstone and there have been multiple sessions that had really good content it didn't matter there were enough people there that all those sessions filled up so yeah. Um, I think it'd be great.
2: I know we have a lot to get to tonight. Is it okay if we just, if can we take 60 seconds to talk about Dan Vogel?
0: Oh yeah, please go ahead.
2: Yeah. Dan Vogel had posted something today about the fact that uh, he had put up a video some months ago commenting on the interview that John Gee had with Scott Gordon from FAIR. That was last December. They had the interview and he put up his uh, response to it some months ago and He's not really good at keeping up with a certain email account that he has. And he found out today or yesterday that Fair had lodged a complaint with YouTube against him, making false allegations, apparently, such as that he used the entire interview. And I mean, even if he had, he's interspersing it with commentary. So I don't think that's a problem. But according to Dan, no, actually, he'd only used maybe a third of the entire interview. And what he found out was that some months ago, Fair had lodged this complaint, and some months ago, YouTube had said, wah, wah. Nope, complaint denied. Video stays up. Good job, Dan. Bad Vog- job,
0: Fair Vogel 23, Fair Mormon Zero. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, let's jump into Jared Halverson. This was a recent uh fireside that he's done, and he's done a couple of these. Um, I actually had an email correspondence with Jared because I found a lot of what I thought was bad logic, bad rationale in some of his arguments. And I'd reached out in an email and said, hey, these are these are my questions about the way you're addressing things. Would you be willing to address it? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then it was months and months and months. He finally got back to me and basically said he was too busy. He couldn't really tackle the the questions that i had asked so i was hoping to find those emails and we could share bits and pieces of those but uh they're no longer in my email folder they're just too those old are, and i cleaned it up and got rid of some of them so
2: you know i feel bad for those apologists because they seem to be perpetually busy
0: yeah they always are aren't they when things get sticky don't they no free um, time no no, peace no they're to the wicked they've always got a trip to jerusalem don't they
2: oh yes absolutely <laughs> or some other place in the globe yeah <laughs>
0: All right. So he does this uh fireside. And in the midst of him having done that, there were four or five people that reached out to me and said, Bill, you've got to have you guys on Mormonism Live have to tackle this. Um, there's just so much bad logic in it. And I was actually expecting it to have a lot more substance to it in terms of the issues that need addressed. And as you, me and Maven all took time to kind of listen to it and prod through it, it really is it's really more surface level. And and as we'll see tonight, the logic doesn't really get um, doesn't really kind of straighten itself out and become sufficient. So no, you.
2: yeah. Uh, first thought is that this is a hugely popular presentation that Jared Halverson made. And frankly, I'd never heard of him before you sent me a link to the video. It's an hour and a half long. It is to the youth, I believe, probably a tri-stake kind of fireside. And he ends up, uh, It was very painful to watch this, but I want to say how popular it is. It has 110,000 views and it went up four months ago. So this is something that lots and lots, I presume, of Latter-day Saints are watching, which is an indication of how much they want to have somebody answer their questions, resolve their issues.
0: Yeah, and we'll find out tonight if he does a very good job of that or not. And so with that, Maven, if you've got the video handy, if we could throw up the first one onto the screen, and it'll be timestamp 634 to 705.
2: While we're waiting for that, can I give a brief overview of this entire thing? Please do. Okay, because this was so painful to me to watch. It is something that is very difficult to figure out what it is he's getting at, because he cloaks things in a lot of um, profound sounding concepts. And frankly, what he does is he spends the entirety of his time not talking about church issues or questions that people might have. And he knows what the questions are. He's got a doctorate. He's got a PhD in early American history with a focus on anti religious uh sentiments or studies rhetoric. that he, he yeah. rhetoric thank you he mentions yeah. that at the beginning uh that's an unfortunate freeze frame but we'll leave it so anyway and this was not planned i wasn't planned by me okay so anyway um but as i was going through this i got i had to keep coming back to this and coming back to this this was a huge labor to try and figure out what the heck he's saying so like i say he spends all of his time not talking about the uh the issues And in fact, he may have perfected the art of dealing with Mormon related issues without ever mentioning what the issues are. And that's probably a good idea from his point of view. So what he ends up talking about the entire time, almost, he leaves a little bit of time at the end for some questions, which is you'll note he doesn't actually read out loud. He just sort of looks at him on his phone and then he gives the answer. And so it's kind of disconnected from what's necessarily being asked. But basically what he does is he talks about the middle way of Buddhism. And he talks about how there's different things uh, that are opposites, principles, whether it is um, loyalty versus individuality, something like that. And he uses a lot of these. And he talks about them as contraries, that these are contraries. They're on either end of the spectrum. And that wisdom lies and the truth lies in the middle. So we shouldn't go too far to one side or to the other. We should be in the middle. So he teaches this, and this is all quite valid, by the way. And it's very appealing because there's a lot of truth in what he says. But the problem is, is it has nothing to do with dealing with issues related to Mormonism and the questions that people have. Because when you're talking about individual growth, dealing with things that are inside of you, it has nothing to do with trying to resolve issues that are outside of you or in history. And what we're going to see is that when he finally gets around to talking about some of these issues, even though he does it glancingly and he doesn't go deep, what we find out is that once he gets there, everything that he's talked about in theory falls apart and it doesn't make any sense when he tries to apply it to actual Mormon issues, at least not to me.
0: Yeah, beautiful. So let's go ahead and play 634 to 705.
2: I love my eight
3: years at the University of Utah. It's been an incredible experience, but it does feel like an away game. I've taught classes at BYU too, and it feels like a home game. And Orem's a home game and Logan's a home game, but Salt Lake for some reason, and I know a lot of those reasons, is an away game. And to be honest, I wonder if there really are home games anymore Uh, in an internet age where it is the information age slash misinformation age. uh, I don't know if we have home court advantage anywhere
0: anymore. Perfect. So I'll just note here, he speaks about the internet and that we live in an information age and a misinformation age, and there is no home court advantage anymore. And my question simply would be why, why, when all the information, both good and bad, is laid out before you, is the advantage now always in the favor of the critic?
2: That's a good Any question.
0: Yeah. He, he admits there's no home court. There used to be home court advantage. And now in an internet age, there's no longer home court advantage anymore.
2: It's a very good question. By way of background, I'll just mention also that he is an instructor at the Institute at the University of Utah, and apparently he teaches on issues related to uh, dealing with problems with the church. He's not really going to talk about it tonight. He's going to talk about contraries. He appears to love this subject. He talks about it a lot. He says he talks about it a lot. He says it talks about every chance he gets, and he talks about it um, a great deal just on this one occasion.
0: Yeah. In fact, let's hear all the classes that he teach. Maven 706 to 813.
3: So when I first was brought back, uh, they said, teach it to you and help us write the curriculum for this course uh, on the foundations of the restoration so we can help help our young people navigate the tricky parts of church history. Uh, That was an exciting course to help develop. Uh, But the one that I started this last semester, we had a week on stages of faith to help people see where they are in the journey. Uh, We had a week on strategies of anti-Mormonism. That was an interesting discussion. Uh, we had a week on dealing with disappointment, since often our questions don't have to have less to do that with to church school. and more to do with just God himself and what on earth is he doing with my life. Uh, we had uh, a class, a, a semester, excuse me, a class on on dealing with doubt itself. We had a, a class on, oh, the navigating head and heart and the dichotomy there. Uh, we We talked about... Becoming unshaken in our own faith, and how to become, how to learn the healer's art so that we can help other people navigate their crises of faith as
0: well. But one particular. Perfect. So he lists all these classes that he heads up to deter and reduce faith crises and to inoculate young people. And my only thought was damn, that's a lot of courses and workshops in order to convince people there aren't any real problems in the church that cause an upheaval. With their truth claims, and uh, it seems to me that this has a lot of risk for backfire RFM. If you if you bring a bunch of students in and you go like, "Hey, there's messy issues, and here's how I handle this," and suddenly you're going to have kids who are getting really curious about the things in church history, and I don't think that really ever goes well for Mormonism collectively.
2: No, I don't think so. And maybe that's one of the reasons that he tries to avoid talking about any of those specific issues in this evening's presentation or the one that we're talking about from four months ago. I don't know if he does any better in his Institute classes or is more specific there, by the way, one of our listeners, Martine has pointed out that she just did a little quick research and says that he actually doesn't have a PhD yet that he is a PhD candidate at Vanderbilt. Mm, Interesting. So, uh, and he says something about, uh, One of the classes he teaches is about being unshaken. Did you hear that one? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm unshaken. Um, I may be shaken, but not stirred.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Next one is 11 minutes and 40 seconds. And he goes in, as you pointed out in the beginning, he uses that Joseph Smith uh, scripture or statement statement. Uh, that truth is, by proving contraries, truth is made manifest, right? Yes. yes. And and there's this idea that, as you point out, it's very useful when you go into virtues that are both good and kind of juxtaposed against each other. And the easy example he uses is justice and mercy. Um, And he talks about how they have to be used appropriately. And I'll let you get into that conversation a little bit. But he goes through and says, not only does it help us sort out juxtaposed virtues that are sometimes in conflict with each other, but it also can be used proving contraries uh, to arrive at the truth within all the problematic areas of church history. And he's about to name these. So at 11 minutes and 40 seconds, go ahead, Maven.
3: So uh, if your question has to do with prophetic fallibility, and I've had a lot of students that are wrestling with that, especially the rising generation that has a difficult time putting trust in institutions, whatever they might be. How do you trust prophets who don't claim to be infallible? Uh, what about scriptural inerrancy? Can we really trust the word of God as it's recorded in scripture? Church history questions, and there are a multitude of them. Uh, LGBTQIA plus questions, how do we navigate that? that a nice statement. Especially when we know and love people within that community. Uh, interfaith relations is something I love, but it is another interesting minefield. It's for some, their crisis of faith came when they met someone else who had faith that was different than their own. Uh, Generation gaps, maybe you've felt some of those and wrestled with them, whether it's the generation above you or beneath you in time. Political impasses, and that's uh, true for our day as well. Economic inequalities, interpersonal conflicts, including within family or marriage, and personal perceptions, when it's just you and the reflection in the mirror. And I have found that if we can understand the principle of proving contraries, we can better navigate all of those issues. Perfect.
0: We can stop. Now there. the statement itself. And and then he goes on, he starts to, and again, he's got the quote up there in the corner from Joseph Smith, but he ends up going into multiple, he says, justice and mercy, faith and work. So he has, he's using these to tackle two separate issues. And as we're agreeing, one of these we think is very useful and helpful to people growing into a much more responsible, aware adult life. As you pointed out, very much secular Buddhism, justice and mercy, faith and works, unity and diversity, agency and inspiration. Then he names iron rod and Leahona, which, um, I can't remember who the, uh, gentleman. do you remember RFM? Who the gentleman I think,
2: was? I think it was Richard Pohl.
0: Yes. I always want to confuse him with Ronald Pullman, but yeah. cause I know it has the same partial last name. Um, when he says iron rod, liahona, he means rigidity versus flexibility in the gospel. Um, that an iron rod is the straight and narrow you hold on, you don't let go, whereas the liahona points a general direction, but you've got some flexibility in how you decide it. And then he makes mention that any virtue uh, can be taken uh, too extreme and turn into a vice. And, and now I know we want to give you a moment to explain, but let's play timestamp, 31 minutes, to 32 minutes and 30 seconds, and this will be where we start to pick up um, RFM and myself beginning to kind of dive into some of these ideas.
3: And especially if you're wrestling with church history issues or navigating your trial of faith, to be able to balance the head with the heart, because too often when I'm sitting with someone that's on their way out of the church, it sometimes feels like a conversation between the Tin Man and the Scarecrow where one is all head and no heart, and they assume the other is all heart and no head. And we have to balance the two. We have to think about these things. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ deserves our very best intellectual efforts, and will reward those efforts, but the head cannot stand alone. In fact, that's what drove me in my study of anti-religion to become a study of anti-religious rhetoric, because I realized, wait, this is faith. And faith is non-provable, that's bad news for the apologists, but faith is non-disprovable, and that's bad news for the polemicists. So where do we navigate this? I, I can't prove or I can't prove it right to you, and you can't prove it wrong to me. So what do we do with this? And I realized, oh, that's why it's all rhetoric. It's how can I say things in such a way that will convince you that you're wrong and you'll step away from your faith on your own? That's sharam a master of language, perfect knowledge of the language of the people, cunning words according to the power of the adversary. I mean, to watch how this all works. So you better have both body parts firing on all cylinders in those kinds of conversations. During, uh,
0: I was in Nashville. RFM, your thoughts on that segment? Because there's a lot there.
2: There is. Can I say something nice about uh, Jared Halverson first? Yeah. He seems to have a very nice demeanor. And I think it's a real positive that he is treating and talking to his audience, even though they are young people, as adults. Is that all right? And I'm especially thinking of the contrast between the way he presents versus the way that Brad Wilcox presents. There's a huge difference, and I think it's for the better. Um, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of there there. But we'll talk about that here for a second. By the way, he also skipped through something that was very interesting where he tried to make a little rhetorical point, right? Which is where he says, uh, talking about um, prophetic infallibility and how a lot of students are struggling with that. Do you remember when he said that, Bill? Yeah. And then he goes, yeah. How do we trust prophets who don't claim to be infallible? You hear him say that? Because they're always sneaking that in there, right? They don't claim to be infallible. Well, how do we trust prophets that don't claim to be infallible? Even the way he frames the issue, if you stop for a second and just think a little bit about what he said, you can't trust prophets who aren't infallible.
0: And they have claimed at times to not be fallible. For instance, President Nelson, only uh, about a year ago or so, said that you can trust the prophets. They will always teach the truth.
2: Yes, exactly. And so they hide behind this word of infallibility because infallibility can mean anything, any little peccadillo, like uh, uh, liking Pepsi over Coke. I mean, that would be one such thing. Obviously, you're fallible if you like Pepsi over Coke, right? right? But it doesn't affect what you're saying. And that's why I try never to talk about fallibility or infallibility with regard to the claims the church leaders make. And I talk instead about doctrinal or doctrinal inerrancy because they claim that all day long. And your example with President Nelson is perfect. Prophets will always teach the truth. Yes, this is the message that we are all familiar with from Mormonism. Oh, OK. So now there's a few other things then. Oh, hey, Maven, did you have Hi. something to say? I Hi. just
4: want to add that sometimes, even though um they might admit or there's talks that if the um, if the prophet is wrong or we're led astray, you're still supposed to follow them anyway, uh, that you'll be blessed for being obedient anyway. So there's messaging out there that it doesn't even matter if they're right or wrong.
0: Doesn't even matter.
2: Very good point. You mm. follow the prophet. And even if he is wrong, you'll be blessed. He said with a twinkle in his eye like Santa Claus on Christmas Eve. So here's the, here's the thing. Okay, so I've got a few notes about this part, right? Here's one of the main places where Jared Halverson tips his hand and gives himself away, I think, because he says, it's all just rhetoric. We both have different faith positions. You can't convince me that I'm wrong and I can't convince you that you're wrong. So what do we do with this? And then it occurs to him, he says, It's all just rhetoric. And then he talks about the person who's not a member of the church or the person who's a critic trying to use words in order, uh, in a certain way, rhetoric, right? In order to get me to leave the church. See, it has nothing to do with facts. He's presenting it as if it's an even playing field. And all we're doing is trying to use words it's a war of words, right? To see who can be the most persuasive or say things the most persuasively. But the problem is, is that even though he only gives the example of the critic doing this to the member, it goes both ways. So what he said to my mind is what he's using is just rhetoric as well, according to his own rules. So He puts Mormonism on an equal playing field with any other system of thought or belief, including those he calls polemicists, but by which he actually means critics of the church. If nobody can prove Mormonism wrong to a Mormon, which is what he's advocating, that is the best of all worlds. He is actually now retreating to the point of saying, I can't prove Mormonism to you But what the heck was I doing as a missionary for two years in Japan if I wasn't trying to prove Mormonism to people? I mean, in seminary. You joined after seminary, Bill? Did you ever go to seminary?
0: Never went to seminary. I taught it. I taught it for a year.
2: Okay. Well, you know about the scripture masteries. Yeah. With all the proof texts. Yeah. And they're called proof texts for a reason because the majority of scriptures that we were supposed to memorize in seminary. I wasn't there for seminary either, but I got the cards later on after my mission and memorized them anyway. They're proof texts because they're designed to prove that the beliefs of Mormonism are correct and biblical. And so there are scriptures from the Bible to support it. But but, he's willing to divest himself of the power to prove Mormonism is true in order to divest the critic of the power to prove that Mormonism is not true. Mm. So he says, I can't prove it right. And they can't prove it wrong. And that's when he says, it's all rhetoric. I E how can I, or the critic say things in such a way as to convince you, the Mormon that you are wrong. So you'll step away from your faith on your own. But is that really what's going on? And notice how he, oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm going back to where I was before. Yeah, he doesn't apply this to himself, but actually he's doing this too. And this is one of the big keys to helping me understand what's going on is that he really is playing a protracted rhetorical game. Because even by saying this toward the beginning of his presentation, he's undercut everything else he's going to say later. Because what he has showed now Is that because he's talking about faith, it can't be proven or disproven according to his own rules, but that it's all just rhetoric. Well, if he's engaged in rhetoric, that means he's using words to say things in such a way as to keep Mormons from leaving the church. But if that's all he's doing, Bill, and he just admitted that it is, why should anybody bother listening to anything he has to say? Although judging from YouTube comments, many Mormon listeners are captivated and swayed by his rhetoric. And he talked about Sherem, didn't he? He did. In a perhaps unintentionally ironic manner where he talks about someone who's a master of words and using them in such a way. So if you are a TBM and you're desperate to have some way of resolving your concerns and the questions that you or family members have about the church, and you hear that there's gonna be a fireside by this guy, Jared Halverson, that resolves concerns about the church, you are almost certain to believe that the fireside does resolve your concerns even when it doesn't.
0: It doesn't resolve anything.
2: No, it doesn't, it actually makes matters worse, and we'll get to that. But those were the comments that I had about this, because I think this is a key piece of video in his discussion.
0: Yeah. And to reiterate a couple of pieces, maybe kind of the, the way I saw it or, or worded a little differently, he, he says faith is non-provable as if it's a 50-50 proposition, as if the evidence that the church is true is equal on the scale over here and the evidence that the church isn't true is equal on the scale over there. And hence, both sides, if they can just play, the, play word games, they can convince their potential audience that they're right and the other side is wrong. And That's not what my experience has been. That's not what your experience has been. It's not what the folks participating in the chat, their experience has been. Instead, I started off knowing Mormonism was true because I believed the very story that they gave to me. And then as I examined that story piece by piece and dove off into literally 15,000 different directions, what I came to realize was that in every single truth claim, mormonism makes and mormonism does this unique thing where it hinges every single truth claim on historical events and when you dive into the historical record what you find is that the critics conclusion that the church isn't what it claims to be holds up in a uh in a difference a, a significant difference over the evidence that the church is true in any one of those issues over and over and over again to the point where whether i'm tackling the first vision Whether I'm tackling the book of Abraham, whether I'm tackling Joseph's plagiarism and other products, whether I'm talking other um, translation productions, uh, whether I'm talking about polyandry or uh, young brides or Joseph's honesty or Joseph's treasure digging as a young kid. And it doesn't matter which one of those things I go off into. There are pieces of Mormonism's truth claim that hinges on those historical events and what you end up with is that at every single turn, the story is not what the church taught you. Even in 2022, when they come out with gospel topic essays in the saints book, once one really understands the history, it becomes crystal clear that even those productions are deeply whitewashed, embellished, and not being forthright. And so he treats it as if it's this 50-50 proposition when really it's like a 98 and 2%. And what you don't get is if you if you we've talked about this before that you have to tackle every issue kind of on its own um for the for the apologist to have some sort of strength and what you end up finding is that if you go to this issue it's problematic and in favor of the critic and then this issue is problematic and in favor of the critic and this issue is problematic and in favor of the critic and so it's easy to stand back and go it's a proposition of faith if you just choose to believe you can but the reality for you, me, and the hundreds participating in the chat right now is that that's not real. That the the way rational thinking works is that if a hundred times in a row the problem appears to be that the church isn't what it claims to be, the statistical chance that it still turns out to be what it claims to be is absurdly low. I mean, below at one percent. Like it's just it's ridiculously low. Probably multiple zeros to the right of the decimal point. And um, and yet they want to make this argument like you, you could believe if you want to, and that's just not how I saw it. Um, he, he acknowledges that his expertise is in rhetoric, and then he tells you that on one side is the apologist and the other side is the polemicist. Those are two sides of the same coin. As you pointed out in a conversation with me earlier, they're both polemicists. He's, he's actually agreeing to that um, implicitly that they are both doing the same thing. And because his expertise is in rhetoric, he's also acknowledging that he's doing the same thing. And as we get into some more of this, you'll see he doesn't ever really want to address any issue in its particulars. He wants to offer kind of a surface level um, choice that like it's fair and balanced. By the way, I'll just note, when the percentage that the church is true becomes this absurdly low, because issue after issue after issue is not in the church's favor. What you end up with at the end is that if you still want to believe the church is true, you have to accept a trickster God who made the case so far against the church being true that you would have to believe he went out of his way to leave so little room for faith that only the most blindly loyal following folks could figure it out and still be part. he sees the battle from both sides as fair. It is fair that he uses rhetoric. He's saying it is fair that he uses rhetoric in the same way he perceives the critic using it. And again, he's an expert at doing so. These are all All word games that are being played. They're not real. If I could sit down with Jared, I'm just a carpet salesman slash pawnbroker. If I sat down with Jared, it wouldn't take me long if we took an issue and I go like, all right, let's ask a question. How do you frame this? And whatever his answer would be, the next logical question would would be sitting right there to be asked, and it wouldn't take but two or three follow up questions before he would find himself in a hole, and he would need to go to Jerusalem for a while.
2: Next year he, in Jerusalem.
0: Yeah, I just that's, that's Dan Peterson's thing every time, so I'm just just bagging on him, I guess.
2: I got it. Yeah, just so you know. Um, hey, guess what? I just want to flesh out uh, something I said that was kind of abruptly ended earlier uh which is when i said if you if the prophets don't claim to be infallible if the prophets aren't infallible you can't trust them i think that may go without any further explanation but this would be like if you went to a store and you bought a compass because you're going to go out hiking in the woods and you don't want to get lost and the compass comes with a special guarantee and the guarantee says this compass works some of the time but other times it doesn't work And you're not going to know which time is which until you get hopelessly lost. And then you'll realize that you took the wrong road because you were using the wrong compass. Are you going to buy that compass to go out in the woods? Are you going to use a compass like that? Well, no, no, because you can't trust it because there are certain things that you have to be able to trust before you're going to use them. And I'm going to suggest that prophets of God should be number one with a bullet on that list.
0: Yeah. It, and it's even worse than that. To me, it's a broken clock that's right twice a day, only by accident. Um, when you look at these issues and what these leaders have said, for instance, if I ask the audience, what has Heber J. Grant given you? What has George Albert Smith given you? What has Joseph Fielding Smith given you? Nobody, even in the believing audience, could answer those questions without going and trying to do a bunch of research because they don't have a clue what any of those men gave. Prophets in the LDS church seem to be empty sources for truth, prophecy, seership, revelation. It's just not there, it's empty. But we're taught to put these men up on a pedestal and to not look anywhere else for wisdom and to assume that this is the best wisdom the world has. And the reality is Brene Brown's got more wisdom in her pinky finger than these guys have got for person after person after person all added up together. and when they address issues like racism, sexism, uh, homosexuality, uh, when, they, when they talk about how um, the civil rights movement, um, when they talk about various issues that have to do with how human beings are operating in the real world, rubber meets the road, these men constantly get it wrong to the point where they are 40 years behind and it requires uh, some sort of unanimity, which they talk about later on as well, uh, Jared Helverson does that it requires some sort of unanimity because these guys can't get on the same page in the moment that it's being talked about. You would think in the middle of 1962, they would be ahead of the civil rights movement and they're not, they don't even get close until 1978 and probably not in reality till 2021, 2020.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Good points all.
0: Okay. Uh, next uh, thing here, RFM address minutes 42:30 through 44. 25.
2: Oh, by the way, can I just introduce this for a second? Please. This is the second major place out of two, by the way, where he gives away what he's talking about because what he's going to be talking about, and this is something that I started figuring out as I was really focusing on this the first time I listened and I actually got a headache. I had to stop and go somewhere and do something and take some you know, ibuprofen and come back to it and look at it again, because what he's talking about is this center, this center place where we're supposed to be in our own personal growth. And it occurs to me that any analogy he's trying to make with this to the church, which is largely unstated, but it's implied, and you have to figure out what he's talking about before you can know, because he's not going to tell you exactly what he's talking about, is that the church is at the center place. So, If we come to the center and we don't let go of either contrary or either opposite, but we incorporate the good from both of them, that is where he is suggesting the church is located. The church is always at the center. And that's what should happen. And that's why it's divine. By the way, at the very end, right before he says amen and starts taking the questions in the few minutes, he's left himself at the end of uh, over an hour. He actually did come out and say it. I was so happy to to hear him say it because it confirmed that what I had been thinking about this was correct because he talks about, you know, God bless us that we can arrive at the celestial center, the celestial center. So yeah, he's talking about the centers where the church is. It's where God is. It's where we need to be. Now in this great quote, he gives it all away because he talks about a question that he's been getting. And he gets frequently from some people saying about grace and works or faith and uh, works and grace or uh, works in faith, right? Or grace and obedience. And the question being, I hear a lot about obedience from the church. I hear it over and over and over and over again, but not so much about grace. And his response is what's illuminating because if he were being I don't want to say sincere, let's just say if he were taking his principles that he's enunciated and did a relatively good job of talking about, he acknowledges that that is the case about the church's teachings. If he were applying this principle equally across the board and to the church as well, I would expect him to say, yeah, the church does probably talk about that too much and maybe they should move more to the center and talk more about grace. He doesn't do that. Because he is never, ever going to say anything critical about the church. Instead, what he says is this, is that this center point with the fulcrum, where it balances, if the church is way over here, okay, well, that becomes the new center. If the church isn't in the center of an issue, and it's way over here on obedience, and it's neglecting faith on the other side, Well, that becomes the new center because now he's going to hypothesize with no evidence, by the way, that what's over here is very, very heavy, right? So if you've got your lever here and your fulcrum here, and it's not just even across, but you've got a very heavy object over on this side, then you would have to move the fulcrum over here closer to that side for it to balance. That makes sense in a physics kind of world but lo- notice what he does he says wherever the church is wherever the church's fulcrum is becomes the center play the tape and vice versa i'm going to skip
3: ahead because of time but this one's worth remembering never give an encouraging nerd a uh, nod to the brass section or you'll never hear the strings again
2: And by the way you should never give an
3: wise counsel because i've had some people when i'm teaching contraries
2: i was just going to say you probably should never give an encouraging nerd to the brass section either so they'll say wait a minute but
3: the church isn't very good at proving them i'm like really how come they said well take faith and works for example how come i hear so much about works and less about faith or uh obedience and grace for example how come man i hear obedience all the time I'm getting hammered with the iron rod. I don't hear enough people talk about the liahona. Or I hear follow the prophet constantly and don't hear enough of gain personal revelation to guide your own life. And that's a good point. Our little kids do sing follow the prophet, right? But they never get to the verse that says, follow the prophet, but he's not infallible. Make sure you get revelation for yourself. It, it's, you know, it's, we struggle there. And so, and yet what's President Nelson taught more than any prophet I remember in recent memory? Get your own revelation, okay? There, there's, there's contraries being proven left and right. So how come, I think this explains something. Certain sides of pairs just sound louder in our ears than the other. So of course, we're going to need to talk about this one a little bit more than this one. Because I mean, have you ever seen something balanced where the fulcrum wasn't in the dead center? It was over on the side? And why? It doesn't look like it's balanced, but it is. Why? Because the object itself is unbalanced. It's too heavy over here. And so if I put it in the middle, it would fall. I'm going to have to talk about this side more than the other in order to be able to strike the proper balance. But as I do so, the beauty of proving contraries is it establishes this continuum between righteous positives, polar positives, Okay, and both sides are true. And as long as I teach both of them, and as long as a person can self-diagnose with the help of the Holy Ghost, where they are on the spectrum, then they can move accordingly. I hope that makes sense because that is key here.
2: The first time a student committed suicide. I I think we're past the part where we we're going to clip it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So did you hear exactly what he did? So we're supposed to come to the center. The center is where the truth is. The celestial center is where we should be. But if the church is way over here, then that becomes the new center because the church is never going to be any place but the center, even if it's way off to the side. Make sense?
0: No, but yes. I mean, you make sense explaining it, but it the the it doesn't make any sense to how I could actually work out these problems.
2: Right. Because wherever the church is, is the right place. It's like wherever you go, there you are.
0: Yeah, the the reason it doesn't make sense is because was the fulcrum in the right place in eighteen fifty-two when the race ban was initiated? Was the fulcrum in the right place in nineteen forty seven when Dr. Lowry Nelson had a correspondence? with George Albert Smith in the first presidency was the fulcrum in the right place in 1949 when the church sent out a first presidency letter declaring that those racist theories that have been disavowed were in fact, true doctrines of the Lord's true and living church. Was it true in 1977, just before the priesthood ban and temple ban were removed? Was it, was that the center of the fulcrum in 1978 after the ban was removed? Was the fulcrum in the right place in 2015 when uh, the church took very homophobic policies against the children of the LGBT community uh, that were members of the church or wanted their kids to get baptized, or was the fulcrum in the right place in 2019, when the church said that they had removed that and both were done out of love. The reality is, if I dive into church history, I can come up with moment after moment, where not only prophets, but also the other 14 men who claim to be prophets as well right behind them, but not, that doesn't stop there. Also, the members of the church who believed those prophets were true prophets and knew by the Holy Ghost that at that moment, those doctrines were true, only to have the church in the modern moment uh, disavow them. It's the reason living prophets trump dead prophets is because you can't trust what dead prophets say. And it's why in this church, one of the few churches on the earth that really claims to have prophets, um, the reality is that once somebody dies, we rarely focus on their words anymore unless... Uh, It's a piece here or a piece there that holds up the modern prophet in the modern church.
2: Yes. Very good. Very good. Wow. Now he would have to answer. He has to answer yes to every one of your questions. He would have to. Yes. He has. And as you
0: point out, we should probably show the other timestamp because as you point out, he, he absolutely gives the game away.
2: Right. Can I just mention something here? This is such rhetoric and it's, bothers me a little every time I hear it. This idea about church revelation through the prophet versus personal revelation. And even sings it in that song in a made-up verse, which is kind of clever, got some laughs. I liked it. But the thing is that, you know, follow the prophet. He's not infallible. Make sure to get personal revelation for yourself. That is all meaningless. It sounds good. And the fact that they say it, means that they know they feel they should say it, even though it's completely meaningless. There is no such thing as personal revelation in this church. And we've covered this before. It has been made very, very clear, even most recently to my knowledge by President Eyring, that members of the church can and should receive personal revelation, but the scope of that revelation is so limited that it is there only to confirm that what the leaders are saying is true. You have no personal revelation above and beyond that. And as elder Oak said in that fireside from, uh, was it face to face for the youth, 2017, maybe, where he talks about getting a question about somebody's parents who had prayed to God and gotten a revelation that they didn't need to pay tithing anymore. You know, that rankles him because we're talking about tithing and he jokes and says, well, I told them that I don't know what is he said something about they may have gotten a revelation, but they didn't get it from the right source. See, that's the double bind. That's the box canyon on the revelation thing. You can get a revelation from God that what leaders are saying is true. And if you get a revelation from God personally, that anything they're saying is not true. Well, that revelation is not coming from God. It's coming from a different source. That's how meaningless personal revelation has become in the LDS church.
0: Yeah. Remember Hubie Brown went, uh, went rogue probably. They probably wish he didn't say this, but he shared what the apostolic charge was. Always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion after it had been approved by the majority of the council, the 12 and the first presidency. What the members of the church don't realize is that we're all as believers under the apostolic charge. Every one of us has the right to think whatever we want, pray and get a revelation. But our job is to ensure that that revelation is in line with how the modern church operates. And the moment you start claiming to have revelation that is outside what the modern church teaches, you will no longer be a member of the church so you also by uh implicit uh agreement have agreed that you will also follow the apostolic charge along with the rest of the brethren
2: bill real that is an amazing insight i thought i knew where you were going and then you veered off in this remarkable direction i think uh i say bravo to you for
0: that and i can tell and thank you and by the way jared might go you know these are the polemicists you and me the the reality is you and I aren't doing rhetoric. Like we're trying to articulate our points as clearly as possible, but we're really trying to give people the mess in its clarity so that you can see where the, that it it is dead ends everywhere. If this were an elder Holland talk, there would be 10,000 wrong roads before he got maybe to the right one and probably never gets there. The car breaks down and dies.
2: Yeah. Oh, by the way, that's my car analogy for this, this talk, this talk, Is like a classic 1955 Chevy that Jared Halverson has, he's purchased, he got it from the junkyard, he's put it back together, he's buffed out all the dents and uh, repainted it, replaced the windshield, waxed it to a high shine. It is absolutely gorgeous. Stunning. The only problem is when you pop the hood open, there's no engine. It doesn't run. Right. It's a beautiful car, but it's not going to get you anywhere.
0: Nowhere. It won't even move. Not a bit. No. Remember, the faith not to be healed is now greater than the faith to be healed. It doesn't work. It doesn't run. It doesn't start. Nothing happens. Again, tell me what George Albert Smith did. What did Joseph Fielding Smith do? What did Heber J. Grant do? What did Spencer W. Kimball do outside of having to make a policy change and allow people to come into the church so it can continue to grow? You go back to each one of these guys and it's just emptiness. There's nothing there. The reason we don't really focus any on these guys at all, other than the modern guy.
2: Yeah. And when I talk about it, not having an engine, what I mean is as soon as you try and transfer this over to what it is he's ostensibly talking about, which is dealing with issues in church history and Mormonism even currently, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't work.
0: There's no real solution to the problem.
2: And here's another thing. I'm sorry, no, no, I have this in my notes later. This is something that's very important is that this entire discussion for an hour and a half by Jared Halverson is a classic example of a wood tool. Yeah. All right, now, can, would you talk about wood tools versus steel tools? Because I, I learned about that first from Jonathan Streeter.
0: Yeah, Streeter was the first one to kind of come up with this analogy as far as I know. Streeter can correct us if he got it from somewhere. But there are wood tools which are designed to be thought-stopping techniques. They they get you to move on from the issue, but they really never solve the problem. And apologetics inside Mormonism are just tons of wood tools. Jonathan Streeter says there's a better way to get at truth. And if you understand how you would look for truth in the rest of your life outside of religion, he calls them steel tools. And steel tools are made to... are. are Ways in which you investigate an issue to actually arrive at whether that is true or not true. Um, Wood tools are circular reasoning. Wood tools are um, telling you to have faith and to read your scriptures more and to pray about it. Steel tools are asking like, hey, if we follow this to its logical end, does it actually add up? And so steel tools are always more useful. But when you want to believe, wood tools are sufficient to maintain belief. Right. right?
2: And one of the things that he said about wood tools that I thought was especially relevant for a discussion tonight is you can identify a wood tool because a wood tool, the argument of a wood tool will be equally as effective in resolving concerns with any religion, not just your own. So everything he says tonight in this fireside from four months ago is equally as effective at resolving concerns for Jehovah's Witnesses, for Scientologists, for Catholics, for any religion you could possibly name, including Mormonism. And when you recognize that about a particular argument, that's a wood tool. And what you should know from that is that a line of argument that can resolve the issues for all these disparate religions means that it's of no use at resolving concerns with any one of them individually, including your own.
0: In, in the article, we just put the URL link up on the screen, Maven did. Uh, thoughts on things and stuff is Jonathan Streeter's website. So thoughts on You could just do a Google search for thoughts on things and stuff, and then type in wood tools and steel tools. And by the way, beautiful article, I ended up doing an episode of Mormon discussion years ago on it. It was really a concrete way to investigate any religion's truth claims rather than be susceptible to one religion's workaround to not really deal with the issue directly head on.
2: Great. Thank you, Jonathan Streeter. You are amazing.
0: Yeah, he rocks. Um, do we want to go to that soundbite at one one hour and 12 minutes in? in? Um,
2: one hour and 12 minutes
0: in? This so was, that's, the, that's this really was yours, where he right? talks about the fulcrum and where it's at.
2: Yeah, go ahead and do that. And uh my point starts at one thirteen fifteen. That's one point one three point one five. So go ahead. That one's yours, I think.
0: Um no 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 it's it, it's in your part. At the so one twelve ten.
2: I'm let's, at one point one three point one five. But if you want to start one hour
0: it, twelve minutes even. So one dot twelve dot zero zero.
2: If you want to go from there, fine. Let's see what happens. The celestial center.
0: Boom! I testify of that
3: in the name of Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. Do you want to back up just a touch there? Maybe let's play that again so we can get a little bit of context of what he's saying. So maybe maybe go back to like one eleven forty-five. Yeah, let's try there. Sonified. Then we'll get there.
3: It'll take a lot of movement for all of us, some to the left and some to the right. But we'll find him and we'll find each other when we reach
0: at long last, the celestial center. The celestial center. That's where the is it, fulcrum is. Is that a shopping mall? The celestial center. It, yeah, it's it's one of the stores at City Creek.
2: I wasn't sure. It sounds like it could be like <laughs> I don't know a thrift store or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, the City Creek Mall. That's that's what Jesus would have done, huh?
2: <laughs> one, two, three. Let's go shopping.
0: <laughs> and then Monson with his pair of scissors just chopping that little that little. uh Ribbon, huh? Yes. Let's go shopping. The prophet of the Lord's church on earth cutting a ribbon and saying, let's go shopping.
2: Yeah, the optics on that weren't the best, were they?
0: No. You, me, and a baboon could probably figure this out better than than those 15 men do.
2: (laughs) Well, if you got me in there, you don't need a baboon.
0: Well... I do. I think we could solve some problems in 20 minutes. Give you, me, and Lindsey Hansen Park, and I think in a couple of hours we could have everything straightened out.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. So we got to that part about that. Uh, he ends now, and he's he's talked actually a couple times you had mentioned, Bill, and I had seen it because I've watched it so many times. But he keeps talking while he's uh, not taking questions about how he has to leave time for questions. And he, he says it a number of times, but he keeps going until finally now he has a limited amount of time for questions and now we'll see how it is that he fields questions without ever saying what the questions
0: are I'm, I'm only hesitating because I've got another thing or two before we get to that oh okay go yeah, no no I biggie
4: my confusion was so I think um are we starting where at uh, the 1 hour mark and 47 Let's go to 1
0: hour 47 seconds so 1 hour even for 47 seconds job. yep out of time
3: but There's a lesson to be learned in all of this physics and the moment of inertia and where's your center of gravity and just trying to hold on to both sides of all of this. Let me just say this as I wrap things up. If your questions that you've been studying all year and these incredible speakers that come to help you navigate the specific topics, if you're wrestling with church history issues, don't ever forget the contrary of humanity and divinity and where god is trying to strike the balance in in drawing divinity out of our humanity i mean the doctrine of the incarnation that christ is the son of god and the son of mary he is that contrary personified and i see sadly some people in stage one of their faith with such i call it a brittle belief instead of a flexible faith and brittle beliefs tend to break because what ends up happening over there is they think, and this is their strength speaking, that church history is hundred percent divinity and zero percent humanity. And the pioneers saying, come they saying, come come you saints every step of the way across the plains. You've been on trek, <laughs> Right? And we all turn from layman from Nephi into Laman and Lemuel, right? So what ends up happening? You read something in church history that shakes you, and instead of correcting, you overcorrect. And it used to be 100% divinity and 0% humanity. Now you think it's 0%, 0% divinity and 100% humanity. And guess what? You were wrong both times because God was proving contraries. You see, it's a lot like walking across a teeter-totter. When you're on this side, it doesn't even feel like you're on one because you're just sitting on the grass with a plank underneath you. As you start inching out to the middle, it starts to get a little nerve nervous there. It's unstable. It's unstable. Un, it's and so you try to get to the other side as quickly as you can. That's why you overcorrect. And yet, if you can coax yourself back into the middle and prove the contrary, yes, it feels a little less stable until you develop the core strength that gymnasts will tell you about and be able to balance these things.
0: You to see agency
3: him. versus inspiration.
2: So Mental, mental gymnasts will tell you about that too, I think.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of those in the church. <laughs> there's a lot of medals being handed out. This I. It, I, I'm a little uh, frustrated by this point in the talk because what he's doing is he's treating the person who leaves like they're a fool, like they had these brittle beliefs and they expected their prophets to be infallible. And when they learn that prophets make mistakes, then suddenly their their uh, their expectations have been decimated and they leave the church. And the reality is that um, my beliefs weren't brittle. I understand the mess. I understand the ins and outs of all of these issues. Um, I, I never expected the prophets to be perfect. It, it isn't necessary. I understood the humanity that that is uh, allowable for these men to have. What I can't do is make sense of how often they're on the wrong side of things, and then I'm supposed to trust them when they seem to get it wrong over and over and over again. It's not a matter of like, hey, they get 99 things right and they get one wrong. And if we just learn to live with some of that, I could have done that easy. You could have done that easy. If they could have got 60% of their things right, I could have done that. The trouble is they get so little right. And when they do, it's often decades and decades after the lost and fallen world has figured it out. That my intuition inside is better at figuring out how I should treat the human being across from me than these prophets, seers, and revelators. And so you take an instance like the Adam-God doctrine where Brigham Young said, I know by God that that's true. And then there's other quotes where he says, I also will tell you that the members of this church know by God that it's true. And now we've disavowed those things. And the reality is if I can't trust them to get it right, I can't trust them to get it right. It's not that I needed them to be perfect. It's that I needed them to be prophets, seers and revelators, and they Mm. don't ever fill that role. Mm. Um, Anyway, um, another one here is 104.14. Can I make a comment about this too? Mm?
2: Because now we're getting to the point where we're starting to see the failure of the principles that he's been talking about as they apply to church history. So he doesn't want to talk about anything specific. But let's just use the example of Joseph Smith's practice of plural marriage, where he's marrying uh, at least 33 women, many of them without Emma's knowledge. Some of them are married to other men. About 11 of them are married to other men. Some as young as 14. These are sincerely, deeply problematic issues. He doesn't want to mention it, but let's mention it. All right. Now, if what he's saying is, that you find out that prophets made a mistake, i.e. that Joseph Smith practiced plural marriage in the way he practiced plural marriage, then you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because we never said they were perfect. And therefore, you're supposed to hold on to that belief while you're holding on to these other beliefs and you're balancing in the middle of this seesaw, this teeter-totter. My concern with this entire approach when it's applied to specifics in church history, is that what he is encouraging people to do is to accept those practices as morally repugnant as some may find them, to accept them as part of the package of Mormonism and living this higher law of proving contraries and accepting the good and the bad that prophets do without analyzing them individually.
0: Yeah, that... We would have the idea of allowing fallibility in the issue that you just mentioned. We would have to make room for a prophet who demonstrably uses child predator grooming techniques over and over and over again. He invites young girls into his home to live or work. He slowly seems to be uh, acting as some sort of fatherly influence over them. Then then begins to uh, suggest that they should enter an intimate relationship with him. He gives them uh, short time frames in which they're allowed to get their answer. He gives them severe penalties if they don't agree with the answer he needs them to have. And any person who's aware of the techniques that a predator uses in grooming young children or children uh, at, at any age. Into intimate relationships, if I had time to sit with Jared Halverson Halverson and run him through the Lucy Walker story, he would inevitably, just like Jim Bennett did, he would inevitably agree that there was deep unhealthiness in the way that Joseph Smith did that. So then I'm left to accept not just a prophet who's imperfect. I'm left to, I would be forced into a Sophie's choice of accepting a child predator who uses grooming techniques that are on the historical record and still believe he's also a prophet of the Lord. And until somebody can go, yeah, God uses pedophiles too. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And he's going to have to come up with an explanation. But like you say, he won't get near those direct questions with a 10 foot pole.
2: And can I just add one thing here so I don't forget it later on? Please. The entire thrust of his message seems to be that the highest and most mature form of spirituality in the church is to live with severe cognitive dissonance.
0: Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. In fact, after the next timestamp, I think Maven's got something to say about that in terms of the kinds of contraries that we need. So, um, Maven, will you play Soundbite 104.14? One hour, four minutes, and 14 seconds. He almost has a slip of the tongue here, and he catches himself, thank goodness, huh? We are asking our LGBT brothers and sisters to live the law of chastity
3: at incredible, to keep their covenants by sacrifice.
0: Yeah, he, at incredible what? At incredible Cost. sacrifice, at incredible loss. Yes. Cost. Yes. Cost. Yes. Cost. yes. And he catches himself because he realizes he can't say that. That's and a little too he, much. And then he puts it like, he he wants to say like the, like what heterosexual folks give up living the law of chastity is this. And what LGBT folks give up is this. And then he catches himself before he says it and goes, oh, it's about the same. Like his words basically make it like, oh, they just they just have to live the law of chastity like the rest of us. Um, it's messed up. Maven.
4: Okay. Yeah, so this is where I think I wanted to jump in because of course this stood out to me too. Um, or actually, I don't know. Are we going to play another thing that he says about this? I think there there right. is the
0: next clip that comes right after this. If you want to uh, play that.
4: at 107? 107.30, okay. Yep. Go there.
0: And then you can talk about how these two go together.
5: Okay. Where's your generation?
3: And as I started walking back toward the microphone, I said, stop me when I get to where your generation is. And I hit the other wall before anyone said a word. And the light came on collectively for that class as they realized we did a good thing and then went too far.
4: Okay. <laughs> oh, this bothers me so much. <laughs> um, yeah. So I had a couple questions in there because I really want to know what too loving means and like really, what does that look like? And what's the harm that's been caused by too loving? Because I don't see that we're even remotely close to that yet at all. And then, um, yeah and i just kind of wonder what he thinks the middle is exactly and i really wonder if his class if he's i guess if he's um portraying them correctly or if if, if it's possible they did just kind of fall for it And i think this was a great idea but when he says they like we did a good thing but took it too far i just don't understand how so and then um
2: what's
0: the thing he's saying we took too far
4: yeah
2: Well, what he's saying there, we sort of entered in the middle. But what he's saying is uh, they're talking about the grandparents' generation, right? And that they were into the law and not enough into love. And so he starts walking to the left side away from the microphone. By the way, the microphone is the implicit center where the church is. He never says that, but it is. And he says, stop me when I get as far into the law as your grandparents were. And so he hits the wall on the left side before anybody says, "Okay, stop. And then he says, he comes walking back the other way when he hits right about the middle and continues walking. He says, "Okay, stop me when I get as far as you are in the other direction from law, which he has designated as love. And then he gets to the other wall before anybody stops him. And that's when he says, "Oh, the light came on for them, and they realized they'd gone too far; they'd overcorrected." That's the point he's trying to make there. But Maven, being as amazing as she is, honed in on the language he was using there—that
0: he assumed to know their thoughts. Maven, is that like he?
4: That was too loving. Yeah, that—that's what I assumed. He was saying it's too loving; they've been too merciful now, and I just don't know what that means, and I wish he could s- spell it out very clearly what has been too loving and what we need to retract and what it is that we need to stop doing. Um, so, yeah. And then I, I think, did we, we played the part where he said, or I think he talked about uh, the, people for whom the law of chastity comes easily. Oh, it was at the next one.
0: Well, well, the next one is the psychiatric unit driving somebody there.
4: Um, Sorry. I'm just not sure if that part is in that part or is it, I'll just I'll just say what I was gonna say and then it sure, can leave he says that after um, okay at some point he says that he's talking about for those for whom the law of chastity comes easily um, because he's wanting um, those who are able to live within the church's parameters to be a little bit more merciful to those who don't although he wants them to also follow the law and do what they're supposed to do which is to not act gay or trans or whatever it is that they're that they're not supposed to be according to the teachings but anyway. Um, as someone for whom the law of chastity comes easily and has come easily for most of my life, I just wanted to speak for myself that um, that I personally find the idea of people living like I do, uh, but against their natures and without love that they actually want as repugnant. There's a lot of things that I'm not interested in doing in any way, shape or form. But I, if that is what other people want, if that is how they find intimacy, that is what I want them so i just don't like him speaking for people like me who could fall and do fall within the parameters of the church um and act like we just need to be really you know like i I have empathy for you that you know for trying you know it's it's just ridiculous um and then i did want to also say when he brings up uh, the sacrifice like that those on this side should also try to um yeah I, i just it's just ridiculous um the idea that we on this side or like in the church are making a sacrifice also when it comes to the LGBTQ. It's just like elder Holland's talk when he was, you know, the crocodile tears, um, with his musket talk and saying like that we've cried, you know, asking about this and just oblivious to all of the pain and suffering and suicides that have happened. It's just not even remotely close. And so I did want to say like, if we do want to be, or if we do want, um, the, the heteronormative members of the church to also sacrifice or even just get remotely close. I wanted to propose that um, what we do is is we we change everything in the church so that sex is only for procreative purposes. So absolute ban on anything done that is not procreative. If you're done having children, then you are also done having sex never again. Um, if a spouse dies or divorces you, no second relationship because you already at least had one, and that's something that you're denying LGBTQ people. So if you at least got that, you're already way ahead and you got to have children. So, yeah. So if you lose your spouse, you stay alone the rest of your life, bare minimum, the exact that you're asking uh, for other people. So no more polygamy eternally or, or you know, on earth now. That's what you, I you might to. have
0: said it, by the way, you might have said it, but I was trying to get the call in studio going. Um, the closest thing we could come to would be a single brother and sister who just never found someone but they at least get to live with the hope that someday they will. And our LGBT brothers and sisters have to live hopeless of that relationship. And it's just a night and day difference.
4: Right. And this was something that I used to do actually, as I was getting older in the church and before I quite realized where a lot of my ignorance was coming from, I was feeling the same way. Like, look at me, I've been single. I've been single, for you know, um, I might not get married. So I, that's the same, um, but yeah, it was somebody else pointing out that exact same thing. I still have hope. I still can try. I I can still think it'll happen for me, um, where these people cannot, and it's really unfair.
2: Right. What I like about what you've done, Maven, is that you have taken what he has said with rhetoric and said this is where the center is, and what you've done is you've actually given a different example that shows where the true center would be using the same principles that he's taught. That's really where the center would be, wouldn't it?
4: Right. It would, but he doesn't go anywhere near. And that's why I just really disliked a lot of this talk. It's a lot of ideas. It's a, it's a lot of wishy-washy. And I, I think just expecting the members to get it's this, it's this culty code speak double speak, you know, where he doesn't actually have to say, what it is that he's implying, and those who are in the know, those who have been in the church for forever, they know what he's talking about. But yeah, that's the thing. Um, that's what just makes it all the more ironic that he accuses people like us of being cunning with our words, of being shifty and you know clever, when we can at least speak with direct sentences and direct ideas, and we and we can spell out what it is that we're talking about or give examples, but he can't. And he knows he can't because he knows it's terrible. He knows it's awful. So yes, he has to just try to carefully dance around a subject long enough to draw attention to it without actually pointing it out. That's what he's doing.
0: Yeah. And if the law of chastity were the same for both uh, the heterosexual as well as the homosexual community, then students at BYU could hold hands with a, someone of the same gender. They could go on dates with someone of the same gender. They could kiss someone of the same gender. And you and I both know what happens at BYU when that occurs. It's not allowed. The rules aren't the same. It's not like the law of chastity is equal for both sides. It really isn't.
4: Yeah. Thanks for letting me share my piece.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. All right, so let's... um. Let's go to uh, one hour and 19 minutes. This will be really quick. And then we'll start talking about how he's going to wrap up for questions. And we're going late. And I'm really apologize to the both of you.
2: Hey, let me say something that the challenge here, if what we are saying sounds at all lucid and cogent and makes sense, then it is only because we have labored and I'm really mean labored. For hours and hours and hours, I'm speaking just for me, and I know Bill said the same thing, to try and understand what the heck he's saying and to bring up the clips that highlight that for you so you don't have to go through all this exertion. I certainly encourage anybody who wants to, go back, watch the whole thing, and you'll see exactly, I believe, what it was that we've been describing, and you'll see how it's all clouded, it's all foggy, it's all very difficult to get at what he really means. And if a person who's a, an, as an expert, as expert as this individual is, Jared Halverson is, at speaking, rhetoric. If, he's, if he's clouding things up, it's likely because it's intentional and not accidental.
0: Isn't that the exact purpose of using rhetoric for when you don't have any substance? Rhetoric can be a way to shift kind of the burden of the argument.
2: Yes, and I do understand that his middle name is Sharon. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I, I doubt that, but I, I think that's hilarious. So, <laughs> Oh, man. All right, one minute and 19, one minute, sorry, one hour and 19 minutes. Back,
3: especially with something as narrow and significant as this, prepare yourself for probably a lot more course corrections not because the doctrine is changing, but because our response to it is usually extreme. And the Utah compromise came and I pictured a lot of Latter-day Saints with their love side saying, finally, it's about to change. And I don't know, we we have to honor God's law. So pull back and then people overcorrecting and go, oh, so it's law, okay, this is what we have gotta do. President Nelson ex- explained it at a BYU devotional saying every single time a bishop asked about an exceptional circumstance because they sat down with this couple and you do want your child to be baptized or blessed. you understand the situation? They... Okay. And the first presidency honored every single request.
0: So I, I hope this analogy is making sense. Hey, go, go a little further. I think he's going to say that 2015 and 2019. Just,
3: constant course correction because it is a very narrow way when jesus corrects the nephite disciples three times in third nephi saying you you're seeking orthodoxy that's good but you're seeking it through disunity and that's bad i'm a fan of orthodoxy i am the way the truth and the life but i am a fan of unity because if you are not one you are not mine so there can be no disputation among us. Contention is of the devil and not of me. You, you so, can pause me, but I, I don't
0: Yeah. He, it, there's somewhere where he says the 2015 policy change and the 2019 change. Why can't they both be from God? And that just doesn't make any sense.
2: Right. And can I just mention what he's doing right now? What he's doing right now is part of this rhetoric because what he's saying is that orthodoxy, is on the opposite end of the spectrum spectrum from unity, right? But orthodoxy requires unity. I mean, they're on the same side of the spectrum. They're not on different sides of the spectrum. So I'm not sure I'm following his argument here. It doesn't make sense to me.
0: No. All right, now let's let's talk about how important he thinks the okay. questions okay. are.
4: Wanted to jump in real quick. I feel like I'm hearing this a lot more from members in the church anyway, and I feel like uh, Elder or not, I guess President Nelson's talk recently is about this too. They really want to follow the law, and they want everybody in on that. Um, And I felt like he was saying yeah, but we need to be united as well. They they just want everyone to stop complaining. And it's it's the people who will, are not falling in line that are being divisive. It's this kind of rhetoric where, you know, it's it's you're picking other isms or you're identifying with these other labels, etc. when, you know, they just want everybody to fall in line with what they're saying. And that's what I feel like he's saying there. He's trying to make it sound like they're trying to pull in two sides, but they're really not. He's just saying, we need to follow the law and just fall in line and be unified about it. And just and, and stop talking about these things. Stop being divisive. Anyway. Yeah.
2: Good point. And that reminds me too. One of the things he says here is that it's the member's fault. It's nothing. It is never anything the leaders do. He certainly memorized the lesson that it's wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. So notice what he says. No matter what the church does. If it provokes a response in the membership, which is usually a negative response that he's referring to, it is not the leader's fault. It is the member's fault for overreacting. You heard him say that, Bill, right? Yeah. Yeah. We overreact,
0: and that's our fault. But he was talking about the 2015 policy change, which it wasn't the members that overreacted. Who was it? The leaders, they're the ones oh, yes. that created the policy.
2: Yes, I'm sorry, of course. They, and they were over, overreacting to the Oberfeld decision yeah. specifically. So yeah. they decide, okay, so the Supreme Court has said that gay marriage is going to be legal throughout the United States of America. And they lose their minds and they decide, well, actually, only a very few of them decide we're going to institute this policy as a response to that. So yeah. we all know what the policy was. But yeah, that was their overreaction to the Supreme court overfell decision. And then a lot of members didn't like it, believe it or not, they reacted. I don't know that it was an overreaction, Mm -mm. but it certainly wasn't the members fault. This is the way that church representatives have of discounting legitimate responses by the membership to decisions and actions that the leaders take we are yeah. not allowed to have legitimate responses because then we're overreacting yeah and it's our fault
0: yeah okay 48 minutes and 47 seconds let's try to we'll try to get us out of here here pretty quick so 48 47 i just want to show how important he thinks the it is to get to questions I, by the way i think it's amusing that he uses thomas mcconkey good friend of mine i i really like thomas um Thomas would have a lot of things to say about this that wouldn't quite be in line with his talk. Um I I know that. But, but he found uh, a good it.
2: sentence to quote.
0: But he did. The strategist, by the way, Thomas knows the stages of faith much better than Jared Helverson. Um go ahead and play that bit 4847.
3: Um now we're almost out of time. I want to get to some questions, but I need to That's if funny. I can briefly, can I show you
0: some? So 4847. He says, we're almost out of time. I got to get to these questions. We got to get some questions from people. It's important to address their issues. Fifty-five, forty-six.
3: Do You prove your contraries. So just a few last things, because I know we're out of time, and I want to have some time for questions.
0: Yeah, yeah. He says it again. Okay. One hour and 43 seconds. Humility.
3: Well, I know we're about out of time. But okay. We're there's out of time Wilson's there.
0: In all of this physics. Yeah. So now let's go to, it's finally at one hour. He just rambles and ran Like he says the brought of time, but I get to questions and he rambles. I'm going to tell you right now, I understand the game. When you are a church speaker, who's going to address tough topics, you do not want to leave too much time. You don't want this to be the Swedish rescue. It doesn't go well. So what you end up doing is you pretend to leave room for questions, but you keep going and going, and going to the point where when you get to the end, you get to field three questions and that's all you're going to do. And that's exactly what he does. If you would have asked me at the beginning, how many questions does he take? I would have told you three questions. So we get to the first one at one hour, 12 minutes and 10 seconds.
2: Yeah, I would have thought he would have at least read them out loud, but no.
0: No, he looks at his phone. Somebody hands him a phone. The phone has all the questions that people have been submitting while he's been giving his presentation. He looks at the phone. He sees question number one and notice what he does.
2: All right.
3: Can I squeeze a few in? I'll- How do I do it? So here's a good one. Uh, Example from church history that teaches the separation of contraries to the deficit of our faith. Well, the whole divinity humanity is a huge one on on, uh, as we approach things. Um, It's actually interesting too, though, to see. It's interesting to even study plural marriage, which I guess you'll study. We can stop. stop? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because notice what he said, what he is reading Are examples from church history that show problems between divinity and humanity, i.e. it's probably Joseph Smith acting badly. All right. Let's be frank. But he's not going to say what it is. He's going to describe it in terms of his overall thesis. And that's where he says, oh, examples from church history that show the interplay between humanity and divinity. No, whatever you do, please don't tell us exactly what the question was.
0: Yeah. Notice this is the guy claiming to deal with your questions directly. And it's the rest of us that are playing word games. And the reality is he saw the question on his screen and he knew that it would be likely to cause doubt. And it would be one that would make people uh, wonder about how that adds up. And he might not be able to address it directly the way it was asked. And so what he does is he just doesn't read the question at all. What kind of person Attempts to address your question sincerely, but doesn't tell the audience what the question is in the first place. Oh, you're muted.
2: Yeah. One gets the feeling that actually enunciating out loud the question would be harmful to his cause. Yeah.
0: And if you, we're not going to do it here, but if you go back and listen to it, you'll see that he skirts around. You don't, you really don't know what's asked the whole time he's answering it. And he rambles for four or five minutes. Okay. Um, you got another point here about the priesthood ban. Do we want to go to that one?
2: Yes, absolutely. Now this is timestamp one point one three point one five, and it just yeah. goes for about a minute and a half, and then we're going to stop it because I do want to mention something here. Please, he. Um, this is a, in response to another question that's not read. I think
3: I'll put it this way. This is this is tricky, but race in the priesthood. Uh, to study what happened in 1852, to see what was going on when with Brigham Young and others. DNC one hundred seven says that the decisions made by the presiding councils of the church must be done in unanimity. Okay. There's it actually say an that. amazing contrary there too in DNC one hundred seven. When it says that the first presidency corn of the twelve corms of the seventy, the three presiding quorums of the church are equal in authority. That's a horizontal organizational chart, but it says that the 70 is under the direction of the 12 and the 12 functions under the direction of the first presidency. That's a vertical uh, organizational chart. Which one is it? Yes. Yes. How on earth can you have hierarchy and equality simultaneously? We better figure it out in our marriages, right? Where the proclamation talks about presiding, but also talks about equal partners. How do you do that?
2: We better figure it out. So is Uh, that the 114.37? I think it might be. Anyway, I just want to jump. a
4: little bit more. This is 114.19. Oh, okay. You want me to keep going?
2: Yeah, let me go ahead since I've already interrupted. um, And just say, uh, this is a pet peeve of mine because I did a podcast some time ago about, um, I can't even remember what the name of it is, but it's about this section. And it was probably Apostolic Coup d'etat. Because when you actually read the section, my, my concern is that Jared Halverson is now moved from rhetoric to actually using misinformation to the audience. DNC 107 does talk about the first presidency. It does talk about the quorum of the 12th, the traveling high council. It does talk about the 70 and it talks about them as being equal in authority. By the way, it also talks about the high council in the stakes and the stake of Nauvoo as being equal in authority. This is this is where they always stop. They never get to the high council, right? Yeah, <laughs> because that's really not. bad. I mean, that doesn't fit today. Yeah. So they never talk about the high council being equal in authority with the first presidency, with the quorum of the 12, and with the quorum of the 70. It does say they're equal. What it does not say, and I went back and I reread the entire section just to make sure I was correct on this. It never says that there's a hierarchy and that any serve underneath the other it is strictly strictly equal in the language of the revelation the hierarchy has been added over time because well certain people felt that a hierarchy was a good thing to have and that's usually the people at the top (laughs) who think that a hierarchy is a good thing to have it's not in the revelation so what he's going to do now with his hierarchy will be seen in the next part of the clip.
3: How do we get there? We we have to achieve unanimity. And how do we do that? DNC 107 says you. the pathway to unanimity is paved by Christ-like attributes, faith and virtue and temperance and diligence.
2: And there's a lot of countries along the way. By the way, notice he mentioned the priesthood ban. Did you hear him say that? That's all he's going to say about the priesthood man. He is never going to get around to talking any more about the priesthood ban, other than just saying its name. I think he said the words and then he realized, don't want to go there. So we'll go somewhere else. Maven.
4: Yeah. And I just put Mormon movement's quote up that said that it's quite the way to say that women aren't in charge and we all know it. That was something that bothered me as well when he was talking about hierarchy and equalness in marriage. And he was like, how does that work? Better figure it out. And I just, you know, something like that would be really good to be more explicit on because this is a way, again, that so much harm is done in the church uh, from men having so much authority and ruling over their wives. So he's trying to make it sound like it's just, you know, that there's this nice way to do it. I hope you figure it out. It just bothered me. It was just another thing.
2: It's it's rhetoric. That's all it is. It does not work in the real world. And I think that's a great point. And he's going to talk about this in another context here in the next clip. This is where yeah. we really see that all the principles he's been espousing don't work when you're actually talking about a real example in church history, even though he's only doing it obliquely. We know what he's talking about. We'll explain it here in a second.
3: Um, I really wonder how the history of the church might have looked if Brigham Young and Orson Pratt had forced themselves to decide unanimously on everything. It's interesting that when Christ created his original Quorum of the Twelve, he proved contrary.
2: Okay. So he's thinking all this stuff in his head but he's not going to let on what it is. So let's talk about what he's thinking in his head since he's given us enough clues. We know that there was a huge conflict between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt on a cluster of issues, but primarily on the Adam-God doctrine, which is what it was at the time. That's before it got demoted to being a theory. Brigham Young taught that Adam was God He taught that this was revealed to him by God. He taught that you have to believe it. Otherwise, you're going to be damned. Orson Pratt did not agree with him. Orson Pratt said, no, Adam is not God. Adam is Adam. He's the guy who's created in the Garden of Eden. He's not God. And they had a somewhat public debate, disagreement about the subject. Orson Pratt came this close to getting thrown out of the Quorum of the Twelve over the issue. And so what I want to talk about now is now that we've identified the incident in church history that he doesn't want to tell us, he's just going to talk about Brigham Young and Orson Pratt, and he wishes, he wonders what church history would have looked like. This is a wistful idea on his part. He wishes it had been this way. If Brigham Young and Orson Pratt had been forced to agree. I think that was his language. If they've been forced to agree. Okay, we finally got an example. Now, what does that look like in the real world? Is my question. You've got Brigham Young on one side who is intransigent that Adam is God. You've got Orson Pratt on the other side who is intransigent in the opposite direction that Adam is not God. They have talked until they're blue in the face neither one have been successful in persuading the other that they're wrong and that the other person is right. And that's why they're at loggerheads. Now, in this context, what does it mean for Jared Halverson to say he wishes that they had been forced to agree? Because what that means is, is that either Orson Pratt or Brigham Young have to cave on their convictions they have to cave on what they vigorously believe to be true in order for them to agree to be forced to agree which he considers to be a good thing the unity part right that's what he's hitting one of them has to cave okay now that we've said the obvious which one of them brother halverson has to cave And I think the answer to that is obvious, too, because the answer has to be that the lesser has to cave to the greater. And he certainly doesn't want to go there because, of course, I'm talking about Orson Pratt caving to the president of the church, Brigham Young, because that increases the difficulties when we're actually talking about facts, because Orson Pratt is the one who ended up being vindicated by history. In the LDS Church, it is his position about Adam that survived and got adopted into modern Orthodox Mormonism. Remember, he said he's a big fan of Orthodoxy. Jared Halverson said that. That has become the Orthodoxy in Mormonism and the Adam-God theory has gone the way of the dodo. My apologies to Elder Holland. So if you're saying now that one of them has to cave and the lesser obviously has to cave to the greater, now you're in the position that Orson Pratt should have caved with the doctrine that ended up being set aside the Adam God doctrine in favor of the original position that Orson Pratt had advocated. So this has difficulty upon difficulty. But the main point that I wanted to bring up is that here we know what he's talking about. We know that these two people had different opinions and he thinks it's a good thing that one of them had to cave to the other, that they were forced to agree. And I think that I think that undermines almost everything he said up to this point. Because I think if he were being true to his principles, he would say, okay, we've well, got Orson Pratt on one side and you've got Brigham Young on the other, and let's hold these in tension, right? There, We have to hold on to both of them. We're in the middle of the seesaw balancing. But no, he doesn't apply the principles when it comes to actual incidents in church history. Not only do they not work, he doesn't want to apply them. Instead, he's going to go for hierarchy over equality and submission and loyalty over agency.
0: And RFM, I think there is another possibility, but it doesn't get better. If Orson Pratt and uh, Brigham Young played by the rules that the church does today, because there's disagreement in the quorum, maybe they just table it and they don't make a decision, right? But what that then says is that Brigham Young in that moment acted as a false prophet and taught false doctrine to the church, which is already the church's admittance anyway. And the reality that by tabling it and waiting till some later time and never having an Adam-God doctrine isn't any better because what it says is that what really did happen is that Brigham Young taught false doctrine? So if he takes the other path, he's admitting himself that Brigham Young was a false prophet by teaching false doctrine, saving doctrines to the saints about the very nature. If the church can't get, if its prophet can't get right, the very nature about who God is, then it's all downhill from there. It's it's not going to go well. Um, so he can't he can't take either side of his proposition, and he pretends like he's got the problem solved in his head.
2: Right. So let me just say another couple of things about this, then I'll be done talking, okay? Right. Um, what he comes down to, instead of holding these principles and in, intention, remember there's obedience and agency and we're supposed to hold those intention? No. When it comes down to the real facts of the church and how he feels about the church, it's obedience over agency. We just saw that in that example. His whole talk comes down to obeying your priesthood leaders after everything he said that's what it comes down to obey your priesthood leaders it is an idea that focuses and privileges obedience over agents over agency excuse me and unanimity by the way trump's individuality that's another one of his pair of contraries no we're not holding them in tension when it comes to the church Unanimity trumps individuality in this example. So now it's all becoming clear. And this is an important point because he's going to make this clear at the end of his talk that he's already mentioned it, that unanimity among the quorums is what establishes revelation. You heard him say that. He'll say it again and quote President Nelson to that effect. The problem is, is that the priesthood ban, the priesthood and temple ban was unanimously agreed upon by the quorums the quorum of the 12 in the first presidency for over a hundred years it was agreed upon which by his definition definition i'm having trouble speaking tonight which by definition makes it god's will it makes it revelation so what does he do with that well we don't know because he's not going to go there but it's a question that his line of reasoning forces him to have to deal with at some point, even if he's not going to talk about it publicly, because according to his own definition, the priesthood and temple ban was revelation because it was unanimous among the quorums. And then I have to ask the question. So why is brother Halverson talking about humanity and divinity? Remember that's another pair of contraries. Why is he talking about humanity and divinity when obviously the priesthood and temple band was completely divine according to his own definition.
0: Yeah. Perfect. All right. One hour, 15 minutes, 50 seconds. I just want to run this for a couple of seconds. This can, is you where go, he, can
2: you go from 1520?
0: Oh yeah. One, that, sorry. Yep. One, this 15,
2: is where he's going to talk about revelation is obtained through unanimity. And this will yeah. lead to what it is that you were talking about.
0: Perfect. 115.20.
3: I see Brigham and Orson playing those roles, but it takes us a while to get to the point where we're living as God laid it out for us in the Doctrine and Covenants. I'm amazed at how unanimous, and President Nelson has taught this too, that we know we've finally arrived at the Lord's will because we finally agree with each other. It just took us a long time to get there. Um, It's interesting to see some of those
0: balances. how do I get back? Let's see. I, I think, I I think that's it, out. right? Maybe I guess the spot. He, he, he shows his cards there that unanimity, all agreement is the revelation. And yet we have multiple instances in church history where that doesn't work out well either.
2: Right. But we have to get in line with it. So ultimately for all of his rhetoric and all of his talk about the, the, the contraries and proving contraries and having positions that incorporate both. When you get down to the end, and when the rubber hits the road, screw all of that, it's follow the prophet. Yeah. Just like we knew it would be when the he celestial started. Celestial center. Yes. Which it, moves it, depending upon wherever the church is. That's where that celestial center is.
0: Yeah. And when we get done with this episode, I'll I'll email Jared Helverson, share our episode with him, and invite him to come on and address any of these specifically and see if he can. Because if anybody had answers. They would be doing a great justice to all the people who have doubts and are deconstructing and leaving Mormonism. They could save the world. John, or, uh, 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 Steve Densley, John Lynch, Scott Gordon, Quaku. Uh, I mean, all these guys could stand up and just solve the world's problems for Mormonism. They could go like, we have the answers. They don't. Jared can come on and we'll give him two hours and we'll take one issue and see if he can solve the logical questions that follow. You and I both know the answer is going to be no.
2: I'm just going to say that if he has answers to these issues, I would think that in an hour and a half, he might have mentioned one. One of them. He doesn't.
0: It's all rhetoric. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, one hour, 15 minutes and 50 seconds. This is where he fields question number two. And by the way, folks, before we start that, feel free to call in. We'll take a phone call or two. Uh, 662 Mormons or 662 667 Call in right away because if we get to the end and there aren't any calls, we're already gone way past, so we'll just end it. But we'd love to take a phone call or two. So please call in. Okay, sound bite. This is question Um, number two. How do I get back? Let's see. I I think I figured it out. Okay, good. Um
2: was a little longer. Um it's okay, you won't read it anyway.
0: Did you pause that out loud? Well, he's just he's just reading it, man. Mm. So it's long. Mm
3: about things that it, sometimes it's easy to feel uh, have testimony of what the seemingly
0: impossible. What the hell? I mean, and again, he's going to go on rambling, giving superficial <laughs> answers, but he doesn't address it.
2: Yeah. That was a very short synopsis of what was apparently a very long <laughs> question.
0: Yeah. He doesn't want to tell the crowd what the question is. No. And somebody's
2: mentioning in the comments that this was actually an adult fireside. And if that's true, and I don't know for sure, I thought it was a youth fireside. If that's true, then what he's doing is even more inexcusable in my book.
0: Which is what Mormonism always does, which is infantilize, right? Everybody that's in the church. Yep. All right, let's go to one hour, 22 minutes and seven seconds. He takes question number three. And for the first time in this entire fireside presentation, He actually reads a specific issue, but notice how easy this question is, right? Yeah, he likes this one. This one's easy. Um,
2: Here comes the the high-hanging curveball across the plate. Great question. When people decide
3: to leave the church, are there any statistics or
2: data that show where they go?
0: That doesn't address an issue at all, does it? No, and he read it. (laughs) It's a great question. When people leave, where do they end up? That has nothing to do with solving a single problem inside Mormonism.
2: Nope. Who the heck cares, but he'll <laughs> take some time with this one.
0: All right. Let's go to the very last uh, section here. This will be one hour, 22 minutes and seven seconds. And we'll end on this soundbite. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the one we just did. Um, let's, let's hear his answer. Fast forward, maybe 20 seconds. Maven let's play this little last bit. with the closest
3: thing to balance. If the restored gospels question marks drive you away from, their, from its exclamation points, then you will trip over any other question marks that are out there. It's typically faith that didn't work. And so you leave faith behind. And you step into a realm where you think faith is unnecessary. I just don't know if that place exists. They don't call it faith. That's a dirty word to the unbeliever. But there's still places in life because we're human. Where all we're left with is faith, call it what you will. Often the same difficulty in religious faith also leads to difficulty in relational faith since relationships are based in faith as well and in the unknown and in the spiritual or the emotional there's a lot of proving of contraries that has to go into relationships as well and so that often what what destroys religious faith can destroy relational faith too um i once asked a group of students what's what's the five most important words in the fourth article of faith And they said, uh, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. Good, good summary. Not the most important. Uh, First principles and ordinances, gospel. Good summary. I didn't ask for a summary. Five most important words, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because honestly, the first principles and ordinances of the gospel will follow suit regardless there's no escaping them. Everyone lives the fourth article of faith. They just switch
0: out it's the object. There, of faith. So first off, the definition of faith inside Mormonism, the Book of Mormon says, faith is things hoped for, which are true, the evidence of which is not seen. Correct?
2: Wait a second. That
0: sounds like Hebrews 11. That, yeah. Paul says the same thing, by the way, a little differently, right? But in the Book of Mormon, it is faith is something that you you hope in, that is true, it has to be true, but for which the evidence is not seen. Now, he relates faith as like in everything in life, in your relationships, in every ism, you have to have faith. And I'm going to completely disagree. He says, we won't use the word faith because it's a bad word. The reality is because it doesn't fit. In my marriage, there is evidence which is seen. I have 24 and a half years in with my wonderful wife. Um, I know how she handles various things. I know what her gifts and talents are. I know what her weaknesses are. I know what to expect in terms of how she'll treat me relationally, depending on what happens in her life. I have enough evidence that I see that I generally know exactly how this is going to go when this next conversation comes up or this thing's irritating or this thing I messed up on or this thing she messed up. Like, Like we've got it figured out at this point. And relationships often are based in what we see from each other. The We build up trust. We build up safety. We build up assurances. He's using faith incorrectly when he speaks of these other things outside the church. He wants you to believe faith has to be used everywhere. And the reality is that the way faith is defined by him inside is very different from the way he's describing faith outside, and it simply doesn't hold up.
2: Yeah, I liked his uh, ulterior little slip in there about how if you leave the church, you're more likely to get divorced.
0: Yeah, I think, I think marriage is hard no matter what, and I think a lot of Mormon marriages end in divorce too. And right. staying in a bad marriage because your religious system pressures you isn't all good either.
2: Yeah, and what I'm talking about is just when he says that if people can't deal with uh these relationships with the church then it's more likely they won't be able to deal with their relationships of trust outside the church like in marriage maven hi
4: hi i just wanted to say in one way i think he's actually kind of right but not in a way that really helps him any. um and that is i think when you lose faith in a partner especially if they've been maybe cheating lying uh gaslighting um just being covering things up And abusive. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying really, really hard to make sure that you don't find the information that's showing what they're actually doing behind your back this whole time while requiring a whole lot from you uh, that this is. um, uh, Yeah, that's something that tends to not go over well when the person finds out. And so, um, yeah, that's why people leave relationships like that. And that includes the church. It's a good reason to leave one like that.
0: Yeah, I divorced. Yeah, It divorced me.
2: For all of of Jared Halverson's attempts to sound sophisticated, I think that he ends up using only sophistry.
0: You nailed it. All right. Should we take a couple phone calls?
2: Please. Yes. All right.
0: Bella, let me turn this up. Bella. She might have hung up. I'm going to. She did. She hung up. I'm going to try to call her back. So give me one second. We'll see if she answers. Hello, Bella. How are you? Hello.
5: Hey. Hey, you're,
0: I, I called you back. I hope that's okay. I saw that maybe the call ended somehow. Do would you like to be on the air?
5: Yeah. Yes, then I'm you're on. Say thank you. Yeah,
0: you're on right now. Your wish is granted.
5: Okay. Yeah, I just I just want to say thank you to all three of you. It was it was really good tonight. And I just want to touch a little something on um, obedience and repentance and faith, because it seems like everything revolves around that. And like you were saying, everything is the member's fault. Uh, for instance, we have a stake president that he had a vision for a branch to be a ward. And every stake Conference or every time that we come, to award the branch conference, he would say, "I had a vision last night, and you will be awarded by the end of the year." And we knew that that was going to be impossible because that would mean like maybe five baptisms every week. And I just remember one one day, I just I raised my hand and I said, "I honestly, I can have all the faith in the world, but I don't believe that's going to happen." And the blame was on me right away. And uh, the blame was on the members. We were lazy. We didn't want to put the work into making his dream or his revelation come true. That was our fault. So anyway, I'm going to hang up now. So uh, thank you guys. And that was a fabulous show tonight.
0: Bella, thanks for calling. The same thing happens with mission presidents, right? They treat... Guatemala's mission success, the same as New Jersey. So the mission present in New Jersey goes, Guatemala's having this success. It's the faith of the missionaries down there. No reason why you can't. And the reality is that because it's not magic, because there's no God magic, New Jersey is going to have a different baptismal rate than Guatemala, regardless of the faith of the missionaries. The faith of the missionaries collectively from mission to mission is almost assuredly near the same. The reality is the results are different. Because they're different areas with different people who have different educations, different poverty levels, different life circumstances.
2: Yeah. And when I was at the MTC, they're filling our minds with these ideas that we're going to be like the sons of Mosiah. And we're going to go out there and baptize thousands of people. They're actually saying that to us. Now I know they're trying to build this up, but still they got to realize. Yeah. They got to realize that there, there's nobody who's ever baptized houses of people in Japan, period, ever. So, they're setting us up for failure and they're setting us up to blame ourselves. And because obviously we're not righteous enough if we're not baptizing thousands of people like we were told we should. And then your mission president or your stake president or whoever your priesthood leader is gets this crazy vision of success, which is going to redound to his glory with his superiors, right? And hopefully move him up that ladder. But his unrealistic goals. When they're not met because they were unrealistic in the first place, get blamed on the members instead of the guy who made the unreal, unrealistic goal in the first place.
0: Which reminds me of Eyring saying that God makes no mistakes in his calls, right? So it's obviously God leading the leader. It's got to be the people. It's got to be the underlings that yes. are the problem. They're always the, the problem, the, the cog in the machine.
2: The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings.
0: All right, one more call, really quick. Uh, Eric, you are on the air. If you can just make it quick, and we'll end with you, my friend.
1: You bet, guys. I just wanted to pipe in real quick on an issue that uh, RFN raised there at the end. And, it, you know, just quick, Jared. We, I, I don't know very I'm sorry. Wait a second. Story. Eric, what did That's you say morning.
2: there? I, I was I was busy focusing on writing yeah, well, your name down so I'd remember it. And then you said something, and then Bill started laughing.
1: Yes, it was Prick. Prick.
2: Okay. prick how, do you spe- Jared. how do you spell that? P-R-I-C-K. Prick Jared. It, Got it. It's
1: it, it spelled A-S-H-O-L-E.
0: Maybe this, this is the prick, Jared who's part of our well, charity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he could. He, most ex-Mormons will give Mormons the room to believe whatever they want. The problem is that the church won't stop attacking us. And specifically, they won't stop attacking our relationship. And this guy at the end has to say, well, you know, once people lose their faith, they lose their ability to be in relationships, And that is absolutely unacceptable. Toxic. You know, if he wants to get up, and drone on for an hour and a half and say absolutely nothing of substance, that's fine. But in the end, he leaves one last jab for the believing people, the people like my family that are sitting in that audience that says, this guy who you love, by the way, he's done with relationships. You can't trust him anymore because he has left the faith. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great point, my friend. Thank you, Eric.
2: Eric, thank you. Well yeah, said.
0: All right. Um, you said something at the beginning about a song. What was that about?
2: Oh my gosh. Okay, because you you titled this thing The Games Apolo- The Games Apologists Play, right? So I thought, of course, you were riffing on the song by Joe South, The Games People Play. And Maven, you want to join me in uh yeah, a- I didn't know
4: if it? we were like wrapping up the very end or if I could jump in and say something. Oh, jump
2: in with your contraries, please. With yes.
4: Contraries. I got to get my up. song. I'll have to pull them up again. Um, but actually, so before I get to the contraries, I wanted to talk about. Sorry, can you guys hear me? OK, um,
2: now I can hear you better. OK,
4: so I mean, RFM. I think you were saying that you, you feel like the the central meaning of his talk was kind of about the fulcrum and the church always being in the center. And that's where we're needing to be. I, I feel like the real central idea of this talk was actually um, to uh I mean, kind of when we go back to having the, the cognitive dissonance and that that's some kind of high form of uh, faith, there's a point. Um, actually, I think I might go ahead and, and play it um, or maybe we did at, at 117. He he talks about struggles with doctrines like being logical or unethical. Did we play that? No. OK, I want to I do want to play it really, really quick. Please. So um, Let's see.
2: OK, and then the floor is yours.
4: Let me get it up here.
3: Soul of doubt was interesting, because often we wrestle with the mind of doubt, but there are those who wrestle with the soul of doubt. There are times where it just seems like this seems irrational, but others where it's this seems unethical. There are times where I just can't
4: I'm going to go both. ahead and stop it there. Yeah. And so that's where, I think that's the part that just kind of like hit me like a cold shower, I guess. It's just like. It's he is advocating here for his listeners to turn off their minds, uh, turn off their reason, turn off their logic, and also their ethics and their empathy. And he hopes contraries can like fix this kind of a um a tug or pulling. You know, I just it's sad. The church makes us go against our minds and our hearts. I think we all feel that way. I think almost, I think everyone in the chat as well who, who has left the church has seen this and we've gotten to a point where we're not willing to do that anymore. And that's where you just can't really stay in the church if, you, you know, if you're not willing to give that up to the higher authorities. And I feel like he's teaching uh, this at the fireside because he's done it himself, you know? So he is a, both a victim and a perpetrator of this really awful thinking. Um, But I guess if so, if Jared does watch this show uh, to respond to anything, um, I just I just want to point that out to you, that that's what you are teaching people to do. And members of the church always really, really hate it when there's the crazies that go off the deep end. They don't want anything to do or, you know, have any association with people who do really horrific things. But this is how they do that. This is how it it happens. And so and this is just the worst and most insidious thing about uh, about this whole thing. So saying that, I I can go to my contraries if you want. Okay. Um. So, so he was just talking about basically holding on to two different things, and and as we saw, kind of saying yes at, with both of them, as if that was yes. very right, very very profound. So here's some <laughs> that I thought of. Um, it was creepy. And yeah, and I guess if you think about it this way, like this will solve all your problems, and you can go back to church. So on the one hand, we can say that God can be really really loving, and a genocidal maniac. Or, uh, is the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham, are they complete frauds, or are they inspired scripture? Yes. Yes. Right. Does Mormon mean more good, or is it a win for Satan?
2: Yes. Yes.
4: Right. Um, are prophets people who commune directly with God, or are they people who manipulate teens into marriage? Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs>
4: I mean, I've got more. I don't know how far you guys want to go. Keep going. I guess. All right. So um, are bishops called by discernment or are they child molesters?
2: Yes.
4: Candy. I just want to be clear. I'm not going to say this about every bishop because there are good ones out there. But anyway. Um, no, I think
2: what you're doing is showing the absurdity of taking his uh, contraries and accepting them both when you get to choose your own contraries.
4: Right. Um, one for me, I was thinking that God can love me as his most precious daughter and want less to do with me than his sons. Um,
1: yeah,
4: I, I mean, those are the, like the best ones I think. So, um, yeah, that's it. And then actually I want to say like, there's other, did you,
2: did you say is Joseph Smith a prophet or was he a fraud?
4: Um, that's in the list. I don't remember if I went through that one or not. Would you say
2: it? Cause I'm dying to say yes again. Oh,
4: okay. Is Joseph Smith a fraud or is he a prophet?
0: Yes.
4: <laughs> but there's other like genuine ones. I think we could put out again, like if we get to choose uh, one, I would want to choose for Jared is, um, Again, just going back to the beginning and, of course, how he's uh, comparing us to Sherem and using all these cunning words and things like that. And we're all anti-Mormons. And at one point he said, if you're religious, you have a target on your chest. I just wanted to say, Jared, is it possible that people can really hate the church and be upset at it, but also have legitimate criticisms over it? That we have really true points to make and that there are real problems in the church that need to be fixing. And if they're not fixed or can't be fixed, it's worth leaving the church over. I just wanted to put that out there.
0: Yes.
2: Love That's that. really profound. And the idea about uh, members of the church having a target on their chest would explain the choice of apparel by the Midnight Mormons last November.
5: I thought that. Yep.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. Take us home with a song.
2: <laughs> okay, just one verse, okay? Because the games people play, first verse, Joe South, really, really. Says how I feel about this whole fireside by Jared Halverson. Okay, you want to join me, Bill?
0: You do it. I don't. We know. We can't play
2: is. it because of copyright. Sorry. No,
0: no. You can. You can sing it. But oh, I, I can, can sing it. it. Correct.
2: Okay. Uh, let's see how I go. Oh, the games people play now, every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now, never saying what they mean.
0: That'll be enough for now. Okay. Have a great night, everybody.
4: I'm sorry, can I do one more thing? <laughs> I don't know if we talked about this, but I, when he's talking about being pulled between his head and his heart, between logic and between empathy, um, I can't believe I didn't say this earlier, but I feel like on this side of things, we get both. So it's not a pull or a tug at all because we we have the the science to back us up. We have data to back us up. Um, we can see people's lives being improved uh, when they leave the church and stronger relationships, et cetera. We see that there is there's not any harm or catastrophe coming from gay marriage the collapse of society or any of these things that have all been promised um and we are more loving and empathetic and the world is a better place so you it's just a really great thing about being on this side is that you can follow your head you can follow your heart because they're in harmony and it makes the world better that's it
2: bam mic drop